Welcome to Practice Purchase Season 3, Episode 6. I have Ashley Garvey-Smith with me again. Hi, Ashley. Hi, how are you? Ashley, we are talking about the big daddy of all the legal documents in a dental transition, the APA, or Asset Purchase Agreement. And there is a ton to talk about here. Just as a reminder to listeners, the APA is the big, you know, 60, 90, 100-page legal document that transfers ownership from one set of hands to another, correct? Correct. Okay. So, Ashley, we're going to dive right in. There's a lot to cover. So, good luck. I want you to tell us all about a 100-page legal document in 20 minutes or less. And let me start by just asking, what's the very first thing a dentist should look for when they get that document? All right. So, the first thing you want to look for, this is the most important thing, is does your, we're going to call it the APA throughout this podcast because I think that's just easy easier than asset purchase agreement, but does the APA comply with your letter of intent, your LOI? That is the most important thing. Got it. Do you you see often enough that, I don't know, a seller or seller's attorney tries to change the terms uh, from an LOI to an APA? So not deliberately. I don't think it usually happens deliberately. Only I have seen it a couple times and I think in most of those cases, it was just unintentional and it's just oversight by the seller's attorney. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. What next? Okay. So the next thing you want to consider is how you're referred to as the buyer. And what I mean, I, what I mean by that is how are you entering into this agreement? Are you entering in as an individual, you know, you're as, as Dr. John Smith, DDS, or have you created an entity? And I would say in almost every case, it's really important to enter into the agreement as an entity rather as an individual to protect your personal assets. Got it. So Dr. John Smith DDS LLC is buying the practice and that's who the buyer is. It's the LLC. Correct. And and often the APA will list both the individual and the entity as the buyer collectively, but you just want to ensure that you are entering into the agreement as your LLC. So in case there is any issue and let's say you're sued for some breach of the agreement on down the road that the person suing you, you know, the, let's say it's the seller suing you only comes after your LLC and doesn't come after your home. Okay. Yeah. The whole purpose of setting up a limited liability corporation and LLC was to limit liability. So what you're saying is, Don't forget to have the LLC actually make the purchase. Got it. Right. Okay. What's next? Okay. So the next thing um, we're going to talk about price and the allocation of the purchase price. Now, this should already be determined in the LOI. It's something that you'll discuss with your accountant. Um, But again, this can often be an oversight. There can be typos. There can be misunderstandings. Um, and like, especially in the accounts receivable, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you just want to make sure that the allocation of the purchase price is what you understand it to be. And it will also include goodwill. It includes essentially what we call consideration for the non-compete agreement and the non-solicitation agreement and, you know, supplies and equipment and other things. So we want a breakdown of the alloc- of the purchase price. Got it. So I'm, I'm buying a practice for a million dollars that million dollars is going to be broken up into pieces that each have names next to them. Some of them are going to be equipment, supplies, goodwill, and 
there are some tax implications that go beyond the scope of this discussion, but we need to make sure that it, A, matches the LOI and that it's in there, correct? Correct. Got it. Yes. Okay. okay, so then the next thing is we want to identify all of the assets that are being sold. This is an asset purchase agreement, and it can often be listed in a long list in the asset purchase agreement, but most of the time, you're actually going to have an exhibit of all the supplies, the assets, the equipment, and everything you're actually purchasing. Now, you know, they it's not going to list every single supply in the practice, but there should be a good list so you have a good understanding. But it's important to do your pencils, 47 yes. pencils. Well, real quick definition, what is an exhibit? Okay, so an exhibit is an attachment to the asset purchase agreement and generally they're labeled by either numbers or letters and with an asset purchase agreement you know you're usually looking at it can be you know around 10 exhibits 10 attachments to the asset purchase agreement and they're they're what we call incorporated into the asset purchase agreement and so you note in the asset purchase agreement that all of the assets are listed on exhibit a and exhibit a is Mm -hmm. incorporated into this agreement so if there's some breach and you know there's not an asset listed or or something goes awry with any of the assets then that exhibit is still part of the agreement it's just a separate document because it's easier to just look at the exhibit of an asset than to go to page 3 through 7 of your asset purchase agreement to see what all the assets are I it's see. a cleaner it makes the document way. more readable okay so exactly. what what should the dent what what's typically in like you said not everything is going to be on the asset list so what's typically there so typically on the asset list you are going to have um your equipment um you know the the actual like furniture and anything that's actually in you know physically in the practice um you're going to have instruments now a lot of times you know, I had, I had one broker say, it's going to take my seller a year to list every supply that they have on this exhibit, which is understandable. And so I have seen, I have seen, um, asset lists be 10 pages long and I've seen them be a page long. The important thing is that you do your due diligence. And so that you have visited the practice that you understand that you know that you've communicated and you understand what assets are there now and it's important to have it in the agreement and so you know you can be general and say supplies but understand that that might as a buyer that might put you at risk if you're expecting some supplies to be there and the supplies are not in the asset list okay so what i hear you saying is be smart about this we're not going to count every paper clip but when you came through the practice for the first time and you saw a cone beam in the corner and then you show up on your first day of work and the cone beam's gone, that should have been listed in the assets, right? Any the, the big expensive stuff needs to be called out. And then it's up to you how detailed you want to get with some of the smaller things. Exactly. Okay. I like it. What So the supplies, I know I, I've heard some issues pop up around supplies, you know, um, so how does that work? Because right, the dentist presumably is using some of the supplies right up until closing. Right. And so that's why it's really hard for the seller to list every single supply that they might have. So what, so a good option and something good that's, uh, you should have in your asset purchase agreement as a buyer and there, it's usually not in there, but, 
um, if, if the seller is drafting it, but to require the seller to have a 30 day inventory of existing supplies. So then rather listing out every single thing that they have, the seller essentially represents and warrants that there is a 30 day inventory there for the buyer to use. And so really, you know, anything that's in there in the practice, you shouldn't have to go and purchase anything additional for that 30 days, as long as you're using it the same way that the seller would be. Okay. That makes sense. Perfect. All right. That helps me understand the assets. Um, liabilities. Talk to me a little bit about liabilities. Okay. So you want to make sure that you identify any liabilities um, that you might be, you're, you're, pur- you're, you know, you're purchasing the assets, but you're also likely purchasing liabilities that the seller might have. So really the key here is making sure that there aren't any claims, you know, current claims or outstanding claims or disputes against the seller. What liabilities do they have? They're obviously going to have bills and things that are going to come due, like, you know, utilities and those things. But are there any judgments? Are, Are there any liens? Are there any claims or disputes? Do you have any patient disputes that are outstanding right now? Most of the time, that's not the case, but it's important to have that in the agreement and have it identified. Okay. So I hear you saying uh, the electric bill is going to show up. That's pretty normal. There might be an advertising contract or a contract with a website producer that was a 12 month contract and you're buying in month seven. So there's still five months left. That type of stuff, pretty typical, but you want to make sure there there's nothing major in terms of lawsuits, um, liens, other things, but some of that's going to, the due diligence, the lawyers and the banks are going to watch for that, right? Like a, a buyer's not going to be responsible to figure that out on their own, correct? Correct. And and a lot of times the buyer doesn't even know what they're what he or she is looking for. And so assumed liabilities are generally another exhibit in the asset purchase agreement. Okay. Yep. And so it's something that the lawyer will look over and say, hey, buyer, is this what you understand that you're assuming? I see. So the, the if it's not listed, somebody shows up after you've bought the practices, hey, hey, you owe me money. Um, I guess in theory, your worst case scenario is you can come back to this document and say, Hey, it's not on the, not on the sheet. <laughs> Take it up with the seller. Well, yes. Now, but what, what generally happens is the buyer will get sued by, you know, because the buyer now owns that practice and then the buyer will have to then go after the seller for indemnification. So, uh, I mean, that's another thing you want an indemnification clause in there saying, if this happens, seller is yep. going to reimburse me for you know, indemnify me and reimburse me for everything that I have to go through for that arising. And then you probably have a breach of agreement against the seller as well. So that was kind of my next question was, is this a big issue to watch for or should buyers be really nervous about this or are we just dotting I's crossing T's here? This is one of these legal provisions that you have to have in there, but sometimes um, sellers will try you know, they'll, they'll try and get you to assume liabilities without being forthcoming. I think that doesn't happen very often, but because I'm a lawyer and I have a little bit of a skewed perspective and I was a litigator for four years that I do see these things happen. I don't think that they happen very often, but they can. Okay. Yeah. I, the one I hear about the most is a seller still owes money on a big piece of equipment and they want the buyer now to make the payments. 
And as soon as we explain to the seller, hey, listen, buyer's paying you a bunch of money for the practice. Use some of the proceeds of the practice, pay off the loan. Buyer's not going to pick up the bill for your brand new uh, 3D pano or whatever. Okay. Right. That's the most common issue. Got it. All right. What's next, Ashley? Okay. Okay. So next is excluded assets. So we're talking about assets and liabilities. Now we're going to talk about the things that you're not buying. And so this can include you know, furniture and personal property of the seller. And, you know, let's say the seller has a truck that has, you know, it's been wrapped with the practice name on it. Like you're not purchasing that truck in most cases that still remains the seller's property depend or, you know, if it is the seller's property and not the practice property, um, usually artwork, personal artwork and things like that are in the excluded assets. So if there's a piece of art that you like, or there's some type of furniture that you like, just as you're doing your due diligence, um, you know, make sure that that's either included in the assets that you're purchasing or, or make sure it's not included in, in the excluded assets. But most of the time it's personal property of the seller. You don't really want it anyway, but you know, every once in a while a seller will sell the practice and then take all the furniture and no. the buyer's wondering why that happened. Hey, yeah, where'd my desk chair go? I'm, yeah, exactly. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, I would say this is almost never an issue. When it is, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, so good to know. Okay. Yeah, right. Perfect. Uh, um, the, okay. the, where I hear issues here, the only thing I've ever heard of as a major issue, uh, besides the one case I heard where a seller cleaned everything out, plants, potted plants and desk chairs and everything else is hilarious. Um, the, uh, the personal computer of the dentist in the office, that's one where most of the time buyers are okay saying, yeah, 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 that's your laptop. You can take it with you. I'll, I'll have my own laptop. Yeah, exactly. But yes. Um, and, and I think it happens more in non-dental transitions. I, I have found in dental transitions, uh, that usually doesn't happen, but I have seen it happen in other business transitions yeah. where the seller just takes everything with them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. So, all right. So the next thing that you want to look for is the accounts receivable provision. So you're not always going to be purchasing the AR. Um, and that's, that is something you're going to discuss with, you know, you, the accountant before right. the buyer purchases it and is going to have an idea of whether or not they're going to be purchasing the AR, but you'll want to confirm that the price of the AR and this can actually change and, and be variable up to the point of closing, you know, just depending on how they do their collections. And so you want to see what the AR is going to be and the purchase price of the AR is going to be up to closing. So you want a new AR statement right before you close. So there are no surprises there, but if you're not purchasing the AR, um, this, this is actually what's really important how is the AR going to be handled post-closing? And typically, you know, you as the buyer and, and the new practice owner might be collecting those receivables and processing them. So if that's the case, are you going to charge a processing fee? It's generally a percentage. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have seen other agreements where, and, and this is less common, but where the seller says, you know what, just put everything to the side and I'll just come and I'll take care of it God. once a month or every week. Now that can get a little dicey. It's not 
I, it's not my preferred way of doing things, but I have seen it happen that way. Yeah, me too. I don't, I don't like it either. Sellers think it's no big deal. I tell buyers, Hey, listen, it's your staff. Now it's their time, energy. They're taking focus away from your business now to collect money for somebody else. And, um, whether or not you think it's a big deal, I think there should be some compensation. So, okay. What about, uh, redos, yes. rework? Yeah. Okay. So this is critical to have in your, in your asset purchase agreement. And I have seen sellers try to get away with not having these kinds of provisions in their documents because, you know, the word defective can be subjective, right? Real quick definition. Rework is uh, seller did a crown, crown falls off. Now you, Ashley owns the practice. I want Ashley to fix it for free. Who's going to pay for it? Okay. Keep yes. Going. Sorry. And that is, that's exactly what it is. And so you need to have provision. You need to have a very well-defined, clearly written provision in there and how to determine if the work is defective, um, where the procedure will be done, who is going to do the work. Is the seller going to come in back in and do the work or is the buyer and how much of the costs are going to be covered by the seller? You know, who's going to actually cover the cost because the buyer, either the buyer or seller are going to have to do the work at no cost to the patient. Yep. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So just clearly written expectations up front. I love it. All right. Non-compete. Yes. So let's talk about non-compete and non-solicitation. These are different provisions and it's important to understand, you know, a non-compete provision is not a non-solicitation provision. And the importance of distinguishing those two provisions is because they have to be written based on your state laws and your state laws for non-competition agreements might be different than the non-solicitation and it, they're going to vary state by state. Actually, I live in California and I read on Facebook somewhere that these are non, not enforceable. So I don't really need to worry about this, right? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. So it's important. <laughs> it's important to make the distinction between non-compete agreements for employees. These are called those are called post-employment restrictive covenants. Yep. And so those when when you say a non-compete agreement is not enforceable in California, now that is not entirely true, but that also only applies to these post-employment restrictive covenants. This is not that. You know, you are purchasing, this is a business purchase. And because you're talking about two sophisticated, hopefully, hopefully you're both sophisticated parties, you're talking about two sophisticated parties entering into a con, you know, this agreement, this purchase agreement. And it's obviously going to do your business a lot of harm if the seller sets up shop next door and then takes all of your patients. So it's a little bit different than an, a post-employment restrictive covenant. However, with that said, each state still has reason, you know, provisions and restrictions around what they believe is reasonable. Generally, they're not going to say a 10-year non-compete is reasonable. I don't think there is any court that would that would agree that that would be reasonable. Um, yep. However, they can be longer. In in most states, a post employment restrictive covenant, you want to keep it to around a year. But if you're talking about the purchase of a business, it can be longer than that. However, I have seen some states hold that anything more than three years 
for like a non-compete for a business is not reasonable. And so you want it to five to 15 miles. That's pretty typical, right? Yes, that's pretty typical. And so, yeah, you want to stay. So there, there are three things that you want to look at with the non-compete and that is the amount of time, you know, the duration, the, um, the geographic area, the territory, and which is usually about five to 15 miles. And, um, well, and that's, that's really about it. So you just want to make sure that those two things are reasonable. And then the non-solicitation that, um, you cannot solicit that, that basically says that the seller cannot solicit your employees. And, and I honestly think that that can be more harmful than sometimes soliciting the patient. Totally. 100%. 100%. And so you want to make sure that that's in there. So they cannot solicit your employees and they cannot solicit your patients. So generally there's a number of provisions in the non-compete and non-solicitation section. You want to make sure that it's reasonable, but that it's still going to protect you as the buyer. Got it. Let me ask you one more question. I want to do some closing thoughts as we wrap up on timing here warranties and representations. I, I hear these called reps and warranties sometimes. And my impression as a non-lawyer is that this is a big chunk of the legal document. What are they? What should a buyer be looking for here? Okay. So the buyer wants to ensure that the sell. So when you say it's a representation and warranty, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as when you purchase something, you're getting a warranty on it. You're getting a warranty on this practice and a warranty on the seller's representations about the practice. And so you want to make sure that the seller has not ever had any issues with his or her license, whether there are any liens against the practice or the property, whether the income of the practice and the expenses are correct. Um, and whether there have any been, whether there have been any violations like with any third parties, like insurance or any other bills that might not have been paid and any claims that have been made against the practice. So um, lawyers are really good at making sure that, you know, this is why as a buyer, you want to have your own lawyer because this is very boring language for the common person. I love it. I think it's super exciting and I love to pour over representations and warranties and make sure that, you know, you are going to get a practice that's free from any encumbrances or liens or claims. And that's essentially what the representations and warranties do. Let me try to put it in plain English. You tell me if I get this right, Ashley. A rep and warranty says, uh, the section says, hey, you as a seller are selling me something. You, you told me some things about this practice in the form of production reports and tax returns and, you know, maybe a broker's valuation or something like that. If I buy it, I pay you some money. And then I find out that something you told me early on isn't accurate. I was lied to. One one client I'm aware of found out that the seller was doing a lot of shady stuff with reimbursement with um, insurance, um, and you know, the, and the it was illegal. Uh, what you're saying is this section is is what gives a buyer to come back to a seller and say, "Hey, listen, you you sold me something that was misrepresented. You owe me money." Yes, exactly. Okay. But here's the key. If it's not in the representations and warranties, then it's it's like the seller never made that statement because when you have the APA, 
there is a provision almost every time in there that says this is the entire agreement between the parties. Mm-hmm. And so anything that we have discussed before this, any emails that we've had, any text messages, any verbal conversations do not matter. All that matters is what is in the four corners of this agreement. And so if those things are not in the representations and warranties, they don't count. Got it. Okay. All right. I'm going to end it here with one last question for you, Ashley. When a buyer is working with their attorney, going through the document, we ran them through the major sections of the document. I mean, how can a buyer be intelligent about how they approach this? What, what, you know, from the buyer's perspective, what should they be looking for in terms of help from their attorney or just education? I mean, this is good. This gives them, this helps them know what questions to ask. How do they know they're getting the right help? Well, I think first and foremost, if you hire an attorney that has experience in dental transitions, then you're going to be better protected than if you just hire an attorney that does other types of asset purchases. I think first and foremost, because I can look at an asset purchase agreement and I can tell if it's drafted by someone who's done a dental transition before. And so it's important to ask your attorney if they have done dental transitions, if they are experienced in dental transitions. Um, So that's first and foremost. And then make sure that you have an attorney who is responsive and, and will answer your questions. You should be able to ask your attorney any questions that you have, you don't want to go and read this hundred page document and read every single word. You're it's like, you have so much to do as a buyer that, you know, spending all that time pouring over every word of the document is not, you know, you're paying your attorney to do that. And so I tell buyers, I I tell buyers to read it, but just maybe have a highlighter and say, I don't know what this means. And then what you're saying is have the attorney be willing to educate you a little bit. Yes. And so what I do when I go through an APA is I, I make my recommendation, you know, I do a red line and I make my recommended, recommended changes, my recommendations. Um, and then I put comments in my document and I say, here's, here's what you need to know about this provision. Now, if you have an attorney that doesn't do that, that doesn't set, you know, tell you the red flags. I mean, it's good to do the red line, but it's also good to include comments and the reason why this provision may or may not benefit you. Got it. Okay. No, this is super helpful. Ashley, well done. Um, I joked at the top, you have to cover a hundred page document in 20 minutes or less. We were a little over, hopefully the audience will be forgiving of us, but this is, um, you know, this is super, super important stuff. And um, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions here. Uh, This would be a good area. If you're going to reach out, if you're going through an APA, you don't know if you have the right help or you need an attorney this is why you get Ashley involved. Um, so reach out and Ashley, I, I assume it's okay if folks reach out to you with questions. Absolutely. Yes. Please reach out to me. Um, you can email me at Ashley at AGS Okay. Perfect. Okay. We will get into more legal documents in the next episode.